Hello, listeners of KPFA. Here we are at Gearbox Gallery with Victoria Highwell in her show, So Much Was Lost. So for folks who can't see, who aren't here with us, what, how would you describe this installation? So this is an eight by eight by eight foot room. And the entire room is covered in photographs of found discarded latex gloves. And so that includes the floor and the ceiling and all four walls. So when you walk into the room, you're completely immersed in this landscape of all the gloves. And what is the origin story of this installation or this project for you? It started because at the beginning of Shelter in Place last March, I decided that I wanted to do photography every day when I took a walk. And so that project, I was just photographing what stood out to me as beautiful. But in taking those walks, I started noticing these gloves and started to photograph them in addition to the other things I was photographing. And once I started seeing them, I couldn't not see them. And so I started collecting them and making like an archive of them. And for me, they represented not just things that we were losing in terms of physical connection to people and freedom and loss of lives, but they also, as a group, represent community to me. So they, they have both a, a, you know, an optimistic and a negative connotation. Following up with that, when you're saying things that were lost, I'm hearing that you're saying a sense of community was lost as well as lives that were lost. And I'm wondering what else in terms for you personally was lost during this time of quarantine and even at this point still as we navigate this global pandemic? I mean, I I feel like for me personally, one of the things that I have lost actually is some of my belief in humanity because there are more people than I would ever have imagined that don't think this is real, that wouldn't wear a mask to protect other people, like the the insane selfishness that has shown itself in the United States in particular is very disheartening. And the absolute lack of, tr- of belief in science also is really disheartening. You know, on the flip side, I feel like there were, for me personally, also again, like there were some really amazing lessons about having more time and what was valuable that I hope I will continue to carry forward. But the the community part for me about this piece is actually also very optimistic, right? That we were able to make vaccines so quickly because scientists around the world collaborated, right? And that they took down a lot of the barriers between that. And it's a really good indication that like actually some of these like very large world problems that we're facing, if we took it on as a collaborative community, I think we could we could find solutions. And so that to me is actually very optimistic and positive. You know, when we lose things, it opens up space. And so we also gain in that opportunity too. And I think slowing down and being in quarantine and developing this practice that you were talking about of photographing every day for a while, what are some of the things that you've gained as a result of COVID? I mean, in terms of my art practice, it it brought back a lot more play into it and a lot more joy that I think had gotten lost. 
I also think it's made me want to prioritize things in my life more. You know, it's, it's amazing to me how quickly we're going back to our old habits. And I really want to look at what all of those opportunities were that were there and sort of come back to them. I, I feel like I personally fared pretty well during COVID because I saw it as a time of being able to change, like change direction and, and a time of possibility as opposed to a time of loss. But I know not everybody felt that way. Great, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to uh, talk with me today. I'm really focusing this show on how COVID is an opportunity to sort of rethink our cultural production, relationships, social systems and structures, that sort of thing. And I'm talking to folks who exist within the spectrum of queer experience. And I wanted an artist, a cultural maker. So I'm super psyched about that. So thank you. So first, I'd like to start by asking you to close your eyes and think back to March 13th, 2020. When you heard about the lockdown, what were you feeling, thinking, and doing during those first few days, weeks, and months of quarantine? I mean, I think like most people, I thought it was going to be for a couple of weeks. And so actually, there was something actually sort of a relief to think that there would be a little bit of a break from the running all the time kind of life. You know, I had a couple of things that had to be handled at that time because I was teaching college and I had to completely on the fly in like one week reimagine and redo my entire class to an online format from a completely 100% in-person format pretty much overnight. Luckily for me, I had done some online teaching, so I had some ideas about how that worked. And it was far enough into the semester that the students already had formed a community and were connected to each other, but it still was just this massive pile of work that had to be done pretty much immediately to be ready to go. You know, the other thing that happened was that, you know, I immediately thought, well, I want to take photographs. I mean, I'm a photographer, I need to make work. And I also knew, especially in the very early days of the lockdown, where you were like really supposed to stay in your house unless you had to go out and do something, that taking a walk was going to be really important because it would be like the one time a day practically that I could leave my house and, you know, be out in the world. And so combining those things made sense. Like it made sense to like take my camera while I take a walk and just start photographing. For sure. That totally makes sense. What, if anything, did you learn about yourself or your place or what really matters to you over the past 19 months? And do you have any insights or lessons or transformations that you've gained as a result of the pandemic? I think, you know, I have always been somebody who has been a bit of a workaholic. That's probably an understatement. And so I think having some moments where that wasn't possible was kind of a relief. And now starting to have to manage a much bigger 
uh, demand on my time again, feeling like I want to push back on that a little bit. You know, I think for me personally, the biggest thing that I took away from it was my observation of people who did better as a, you know, who did better than say some other people mentally during the pandemic was people that were able to look at it as an opportunity for something, as an opportunity for looking at things in a different way or an opportunity to rethink something about their life or how they live their life. And that people that did that and were able to like, not mourn the loss of whatever they weren't gonna do, but were able to say, well, what can I do? Were the people that did the best. And for me, I mean, you know, for a lot of artists, it was a really not very productive time. You know, a lot of people, they couldn't get to their studios. They felt like they couldn't find a different way to make work. You know, a lot of people, their shows got uh, pushed back quite far. Some of them didn't happen at all. And they weren't able to pivot at all. Like they just wanted things to be the way they were. For me, I had the opposite experience, which is that it was a very productive and prolific time for me. And I made work, I just made work differently. You know, I just started making work and I even curated differently and looked for opportunities within the scope of what was happening to see like what I could do to keep being creative. And it really changed actually like how I'm making work. Can you say more about that? Yeah, because I started making work more like more playful and experimental just to make it and not worrying about the end goal. And I realized in, you know, sometime in the middle of doing it that like, wow, it had been a really long time since I had just taken pictures for the joy of taking pictures, which was sad, right? I mean, that should be there all the time. And so, so this idea of like play and experimentation and like, making more time for things that don't have uh, an already predetermined end result was kind of a big shift. Have you been able to maintain that? Somewhat. I'm definitely working hard to maintain it. Oh, cool. That's really, that's really great. What do you feel like, we talked about this a little bit at the opening, but I want to bring it back into this time, which is What did you lose or let go of over the past 19 months? And as a lens-based artist, curator, and educator, right, you create these archives of everyday objects or ordinary human experience you've been, I've known you to say. And so I'm wondering, like highlighting the value of the ordinary in in a very extraordinary time, sort of like how that like maybe transformed for you or any insights you got about that? And then also just kind of like, what did you let go of and or lose over the past 19 months? Small personal loss, or are we talking about like big philosophical humanity loss? (laughs) We're talking personal and also art practice wise. I don't know if I lost anything. I feel like actually... I've been able to really maintain a lot of that stuff. I mean, as far as like my teaching, you know, I spent a lot of time like learning how to be 
much better teacher online. And there were a lot of valuable things in it, but it was a lot of work for a job that's already very underpaid and very underappreciated to put like having to completely rethink and reimagine and redesign all your classes was incredibly tiring and time consuming. You know, this semester after the pandemic started in the middle of a semester, right? So the next semester, I think I worked every weekend. I worked some days like until 11 o'clock at night and my experience of how other people thought about teachers, I mean, I'm not K through 12, so I didn't have it as bad, but the kinds of things that parents said and thought about teachers and the ways in which people were not standing up for us, our unions, the government, the states, the cities, it brought out some of my own frustration and kind of, I mean, I, something I've been doing for 25 years. So my thoughts about maybe that I was done with that part of my life have definitely been hastened because of this, that if I don't want to be working all the time and I have to give something up, that is clearly at the top of the list of the thing that I want to give up. And my husband talks about how that's unfortunate because I'm good at what I do, but it's a it's too thankless a job at this point. So it's like um, the joy has been worked out of you in some ways, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the parts of teaching that were like fun and self satisfying really got diminished. I mean, it's actually interesting because. There was a point earlier in the pandemic where I felt actually much more energized about teaching than I had been because people were so desperate to have something. And because I could make it work on Zoom for what I teach and for the people I was teaching, they were so excited to have something to do and to be creative. And, and it actually was really like actually more satisfying for a period of time. But then now it's definitely much less satisfying because I'm sick of Zoom and I don't think there's been any acknowledgement at all of what teachers went through and, and how they rose to the occasion. I think all of their labor has been fairly invisible for most people. Completely. And there's this weird hybrid of zoom and in person go back to normal do all the things and do all these other things and also put yourself at risk and there is no economic compensation for, or even recognition for any of it right yeah i mean if there was ever a scenario that could burn you out in a year after 25 years right one could argue that i mean i can relate to that this is my 16th year yeah. And I, I really enjoyed doing it online last year. I was having great, great conversations. And because people were at home and there was no commute and people were hungry to, to make work and, you know, make photographs and learn how to do that and to tell their own story. And it was, it was a beautiful time, but that time has passed for sure. And I think related to that, I'm wondering if there was if there were any gifts or any like silver linings that 
have come out of or starting to sort of rise to the surface from this pause and recalibration that you're talking about in terms of your art practice and also in terms of teaching and curation of these ways that you've done things differently. So I'm wondering what kind of shifts and or gifts that have arisen as a result of these past 19 months and this journey that we're on that's not going anywhere. I mean, I think it caused me to think about different ways to have art in the world and different ways that people could be exposed to art. You know, I mean, what's unfortunate is I think there were some really interesting moments during the pandemic that I don't know that we could get back. You know, all of these big institutions across the country, even around the world, you know, you used to have to go to an artist talk or curators talk in New York in person. You know, this very famous curator that you want to go here speak, but they're speaking 6,000 miles away from you, you know? And then now all of a sudden it's a three hour time difference and you could just log on in your house and listen to this brilliant person talk for free or very little money. And while I think a lot of places are gonna keep that going, like I know that my ability to to listen to things on Zoom is so much less now because I'm so sick of it. But that was a really interesting moment. I also think that we're still in the middle of an interesting moment of re-examining. I mean, this was less to do with the pandemic and more to do with Black Lives Matter, but you know, like institutions of art, things like museums and galleries and stuff took such a big financial hit that they're still recovering from it. And then they also took big philosophical hits of people like finally really calling to task, you know, who it is that gets represented in these worlds. And so again, there was like a moment, you know, six months, nine months ago that seemed really optimistic that I actually felt that there was a moment where the our world felt so much more democratic and open. And already I can see that slipping away too. And most museums did not step up to the plate. They didn't hire new people on, on their board. I think a lot of people are showing people of color right now. And I'm gonna say that in like three to five years, I think most of that's gonna be gone. It's gonna like be like, oh, you had your moment and now we're back to white men. And um, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, maybe that's very pessimistic, but that wouldn't surprise me. Um, because the decision makers haven't changed. Mm -hmm. And if you don't change the decision makers, then you're not going to change who makes it through the door. So I think that there were like these moments that showed so much promise that I really, I'm wondering if any of it will get realized. I mean, I think that the pandemic and George Floyd in particular, and the power of the pause of people slowing down was like the perfect storm in terms of a reckoning with white supremacy. But just like every time that happens, there's always pushback because it's in the fabric, it's in the soil, it's in the DNA. It's been here for 500 years. And so I think that, that it takes more than a slowing down for a few months, like three to four months, right? Because things started to amp back up in, in July, right? And and so I think that there's, there was an enormous amount of hope in June of 2020 that 
feels really far away now in December of 2021. And it's unfortunate because it is like one of those things that once you flip the switch or once you make a decision to reprioritize and change your perspective of what really matters, if you actually put the action into the words and follow it through with changes and structures and systems, then that's how you transform culture. And they talked about doing that a lot. Mm. What I'm hearing from you is they didn't really follow through with the hierarchies and who makes the decisions and who's included and that sort of thing. And so how does your queer identity inform your work and perspective in terms of like being imaginative or resourceful or creative during these difficult times and also possibly relating to your resilience or insights that you might have from that resilience? I mean, that's an interesting question because most people would say I don't have a queer identity. What would you say that you have a queer identity? Not as much anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I used to think I I had more of that. I think that there are definitely like systems that I don't feel fully understand about, you know, binaries around gender and things like that. And certainly when I was younger, I would have, I did describe myself as being queer, even though I'm a woman that dated men. Um, I don't know if I would say that now. I think most of my experience with that is right now is through my son's identity, right? And his friend's identities and thinking about the ways they're trying to live in the world outside of binaries. Does that influence your perspective? or inform your work in any way? I don't know. I don't know if it changes my perspective. I mean, I think I'm pretty um, knowledgeable in some of these areas for somebody who is not maybe themselves queer is that none of this is a surprise to me. Like, I feel like I understand it. Yeah, I don't know if that affects me. I mean, more, more of what I've thought about in my work is feminism uh, you know if that falls under if, if you're talking more about like the general idea of like othering and being outside of like patriarchy then yes I think that's where I see it the most is this idea of feminism and what does it mean to think of yourself and your life and your art in a feminist lens right and your my curating specifically You know, I made a really clear decision. This was before the pandemic, but only in the last couple of years, I had made a really clear decision to say that I was a feminist artist, even though a lot of my work doesn't look like what people expect when they hear feminist artists, right? I mean, I have some work that does. I used to work much more in the domestic realm, which was easier for people to understand. But now when people look at it, I've had curators in other art world community be like, I I don't understand how this is feminist or wanting it to be more clearly coded as feminist. For example, like what if I printed some photographs on silk because the fabric itself would be, you know, softer. And for me, those are really obvious, you know, and so maybe that goes back to this idea of like queer identity of, and being outside of a binary is this idea of like, 
why do you go to the obvious place? Like, why is femininity supposed to look like this one set of things? And if you say that you're a feminist artist, then why is there an expectation that you make a certain kind of work? And I'm really clear about how my work connects to feminist art history. Like it's not, to me, it's really actually very obvious, but there's an aesthetic part that I think people come with a preconceived notion about that isn't there because the for me the connections are connect, conceptual connections they're not aesthetic connections my aesthetic connections are much more to modernism which is super male actually right even super white but that's my that's a lot of my aesthetic connections but my conceptual connections are very far away from that right and i think that you know part of being queer is being flexible and fluid and and really examining any kind of binary and figuring out what's missing in that situation and or what's being rendered invisible or or cut out or however I think there's a lot of different ways and I think that work is like a domestic and space work and space are both very gendered in our current social structure right yeah and so, so when you're talking about daily life or ordinary objects, which you do talk about on a regular basis, there is this, to me, the reason why I think of you as a queer artist is because there is this very clear questioning and, and unpacking and complicating and untangling this idea of the gendered aspects of space and place and work and daily life we, the structures of, of our social systems are very much embedded within this understanding, this gendered understanding. And so it, it's like, it goes beyond sexual practice or gender identity to me. It goes mm -hmm. into this place of like, I don't feel like I need to explain when I hang out with you or talk to you, like justify what does or doesn't work for me. Right. There are, it doesn't feel like there are preconceived notions and assumptions. And I think that that part is really hard for people to have because even non-binary people that I know, right. Or other queer folks that I know, they still have this almost unconscious or subconscious commitment to, to this gendered way of talking about certain things. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't think you have that. And I think that's, that's why I think of you in that way. And I also think that feminist in this misogynistic patriarchal world, right? It's, it's like feminism in particular lends itself to queering. And a lot of like the feminists that I think about and that I look to are black lesbian feminists. You know what I'm saying? And mm. that, and I think that there's this spectrum, right? And like the abortion laws and the transphobia are all related in terms yeah. of structures and in terms of the pushback of what we're dealing well, with. Well, in terms of control. Exactly, over bodies that are not cis male, straight, <laughs> right? White. Yeah. European. Yeah. Okay, but I digress. So, um, my last question for you <laughs> is Do you have any words of wisdom or calls to action that you would like to leave our listeners with, especially in how to reconsider or transform social structures into spaces and places supporting feminism, healing, just practices, 
a more democratic art practice like you were just discussing earlier, what kinds of words of wisdom or calls to action would you like to, if you could just make it happen, what would you, what would you want it to be like? Oh, that's such a big question. You know, the first thing that came into my head is, you know, in the same ways that there is a push right now to bring critical race theory to education and schools and to go back to the lessons, particularly about history and see like whose histories were we examining and were taught and which histories have not been talked about and which histories have been omitted. You know, one of the things that I found really interesting in the midst of the pandemic when I was very personally disappointed in how museums in particular were responding to critiques about them was that there was a lot of discussion about or there was a lot of fear around like, but we still have to show high quality art mm -hmm. and, and how just the ideas about that are already so flawed, right? So in the same way that we have to accept, you know, that we're taught, you know, that our, that our education system is inherently racist and flawed, like our, art lens is inherently European white male. I mean, it just is. And so our standards of what is good art is incredibly flawed. And so I guess what I would like to see is more discussion, like more critical discussion in the art world of like, what does it mean to evaluate art? What does it mean to say that somebody is a talented artist? Like, how do we make those evaluations? Um, and how can we rethink how we make those evaluations? Like that to me is actually a really interesting area to look at. I, I mean, maybe there are people doing it, but I haven't heard about a lot of people doing this. I haven't heard about a lot of people like really digging into why we value certain things over others aesthetically, you know, which is not to say that I don't, you know, me personally, like I love me a modernist minimalist, right? I mean, I do. And I think that's fine, but it's also good to realize that like, that's not the only standard of excellence. That's not the only standard of beauty. That's not the only way of understanding creative practice. So I guess like that's the place where I think it would be interesting to have a little bit of a revolution. And so it's not just about showing people of color's work. It's not even just about putting those people on museum boards and giving them curatorial positions. It's actually having like a big discussion about like what do we think of as talent? <laughs> and what do we think of as, you know, exceptional art? Why do we think it is exceptional? I think a lot of people get left out of, and not just people of color, I just think a lot of people get left out of the art world and the academic art world um, because they don't, um, they don't know how to be in it. They don't fit in it they're really outside of it. I mean, right before the shutdown, like one of the most exciting things that I 
saw was that fairly big commercial gallery in San Francisco had like a little, like an exhibition within their space of Jerome Kaya's work, who's not all that well known. You know, I mean, I know his work, you know his work, but he's not hugely well known in the bigger art world. And the guy who was talking about the work was super passionate about it. I mean, I actually knew tons of stuff that I did not know about him. Like I just, he was talking to this young couple and I spent probably an hour just listening to him talk. Cause I was like, Ooh, I didn't know that. And I, this is so interesting. You know, at one point he was like, do you know Jerome Kai's work? I was like, yes. But you know, almost everybody who came to this didn't. And this couple was so amazed by this work. And they could connect to it in a way that I bet they couldn't connect to. They weren't like art world people and they could connect to it in a way that I think they couldn't connect to a lot of the other work in that building probably. And so they were fascinated by it. You know, it was like materials they understood. I mean, it's like makeup and glitter and, you know, things that are, are much more related to their like ordinary everyday life, but also, you know, his trauma and suffering also, I think, and, and this guy wasn't like making into a dog and pony show, but he was telling the truth about this man's life and his death that is kind of a universal story, right? That um, it's not in this high pedestal. Like, I mean, I think we have this problem with art being on this high pedestal for all kinds of reasons. Well, I think the elitism that's embedded within this, again, the social structures, right? And the systems, who gets to go to art? school, how much art school costs, who doesn't need to work while they're doing art at the same time, right? And also just the idea of what you're imagining as worthy of representation. Mm -hmm. And then even thinking about who has like the opportunity and the access and the privilege to really think about space, place, time, and the body in this way that feels with, that isn't embedded in like agency, like where's the agency, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that these structures are, are designed to perpetuate a very particular lens like you were talking about before. And then when you, but then what happens is that there's a break in that fabric and there's a fissure when the authenticity manages to be so clear and that it, it can't be ignored. But there's lots of work being made that has never even had the opportunity to be seen or enter into the art world. Right. And that is, ju is just as good, if not more powerful, right? But if art is about making people comfortable or reinforcing current ideas, it's a very different art than art that's making people uncomfortable and people question and people imagine a different way of being. And right. there's stakes that, that are at place in terms of how much, how radical and how transformative do you want that to be? And then, then there's the whole capitalist intersection of like, will you pay for mm -hmm. a transformation that and, and a piece that is trying to, you know, dismantle capitalism or white supremacy or misogyny or, you know, or any of the isms, right? So I think that there can only be a select few who can break through because if there were, if there was a critical mass then we'd have to redefine our morals and our ethics and our philosophies and then our social structures, if mm -hmm. we really cared, that would be a huge radical shift and transformation. 
So only a few are let in, <laughs> you know. But I do think that one thing that COVID did was make people self-reflective. And unfortunately, it's, it seems to have stopped there. And there's this, right now, I feel like there is this time where people are waiting for things to go back to normal. But those of us who have been on the margins forever, there has been no normal and there has been no safe and there, and there isn't anything we really want to go back to. Mm -hmm. And so we'd like to see those things that poke, that were like super visible that are now going back, receding back into the shadows. We'd like to see those more at the forefront again. And, but this is the way social change happens. You have a big, huge shift push, and then it's, you know, two steps back. And so I feel very much so like we're back there right now. And it's a hard, it's definitely a hard place to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of part of the reason why I'm doing this show is because I want us to remember the gifts and the insights and they're not that far gone and they may be in the shadow, but they're not buried yet. Right. And I don't want them to be buried. I want to like bring them into the light again. Any last words before I let you go? I don't think so. I really enjoy talking to you and really thinking about all of these things. And I'm so appreciative because I know your schedule is super busy that you made the time to talk with me and, and really go there and be vulnerable and be honest. So thank you for that. Honored that you chose me to be part of what I'm guessing is going to be a very interesting group of people talking about this. And I, I love that you have like an artist and a like psychologist and an economist. I can't remember what you have. Sociologist. Sociologist. Like, because also this idea that these things are like separate from each other is kind of an illusion also, you know, this desire to compartmentalize everything and not see the, the interactions. I mean, this is why we have all of these like issues, even like in our economy and our labor forces. You, you push one thing here, it's gonna be felt over there. It might take a little while and then you don't see the connection. Mm -hmm. The interdependence of being human on this globe, in this global ecosystem, which yeah. is what it is, is so obvious to us. But there are lots of people who do not, who are so attached to that independent um, individualism mm -hmm. that is really seeped into the culture of the U.S. and it the is. myth of the United States. It is. From a European immigrant back, you know, perspective, right? Yeah. I mean, but they can't, you can't, you won't survive on your own. That's just fact. Right. And people remember that for a little while. It's like 9-11 when people were coming together too. Except that it's really interesting because with this, like, yeah, some people came together. I mean, like, it's amazing that we have these vaccines. And I think like, you know, in our little like protected bubble of the Bay Area, people really came together. But if you look at the country as a whole, we didn't at all, right? I mean, there's more division. There's more, I mean, there is more crazy wackadoodles than ever. You know, like one of the scariest things to me right now is knowing like how many people there are that like, honestly, I don't know how, but honestly in their hearts believe this stuff because it is like so off the wall. I mean, I mean, to, 
it it reminds me of um it's like mass hallucination yeah exactly 